This is part two of a series of mini-stories all about animals and their impact on history. I'm Jake Barton, welcome to Historium, episode 35, Animals, part two. Mini-story number nine, what a way to go out. Andrew Thornton II was always up to no good. As a teenager, he was shipped off to a military academy and then served in the U.S. Army. Afterwards, he became a narcotics cop and a lawyer. After making hundreds of shady connections and seeing the incredible profit that could be made incredibly quickly, Andrew Thornton broke bad. He began smuggling large amounts of marijuana and cocaine into the United States. In 1985, while on a coke smuggling run from Colombia and after dropping packages off in northern Georgia, he jumped from his plane. However, his parachute got tangled and he fell to his death. He landed in an old man's backyard in Tennessee, where he was found with an open duffel bag containing $15 million worth of cocaine. But the authorities and the investigators wagered that there was probably even more cocaine that was either dumped from his plane or from Thornton himself before he was reacquainted with the ground. And they were right. As they trekked into the Chattahoochee National Forest, they began finding large open plastic bins with trace amounts of cocaine. They found 40 containers just like this, all empty. The authorities began an investigation on anyone who had been in the area and could have potentially taken that much cocaine. But soon, they came upon a 175-pound black bear. The bear was dead, and when the medical examiner came by, they found the reason why. Cocaine overdose. The medical examiner said this to reporters. Its stomach was literally packed to the brim with cocaine. There isn't a mammal on the planet that could survive that. Cerebral hemorrhaging respiratory failure, hyperthermia, renal failure, heart failure, stroke, you name it, that bear had it. Due to the strange nature of the bear's demise, the animal was taxidermied and now resides in a museum in Lexington, Kentucky. The bear goes by many names, including simply the cocaine bear or my personal favorite, Pablo Escobar. While this story is naturally somewhat tragic, I think it's important to look for silver lining, or in this case, white linings. Of all the ways for a bear to die in the woods, I think this one takes the coke. I mean cake. Mini story number 10, anti-tank dogs. As we talked about last episode, strapping bombs to animals and hoping for the best is sadly not as rare in human history as you would think or hope. Before the Second World War, the Soviet Union began training dogs to run under tanks and then sit. Good dog. These dogs had large explosives strapped to them that would be triggered when they crawled under the tank. When the Nazis began their advance on the Eastern Front, the Soviet let loose the dogs of war. However, during their training, these dogs were taught to locate the smell of diesel fuel coming from Russian tanks. So instead of charging at the German panzers that ran on gasoline, they turned around and ran under the tanks of their masters, where they then exploded. Good dog. Mini story number 11, Unsinkable Sam. Rats are a real threat to seafaring vessels. They can get into food stores and damage ropes and woodwork. Because of this, it was common for ships to have a resident cat to keep their rat problems at bay. The adaptability of cats made them perfect for life on a ship, 
and they were often beloved by the ship's crew. One such cat was aboard the German battleship Bismarck in 1941. He was a black and white cat named Oscar, after the code word for overboard. Oscar enjoyed exploring the ship and hanging out near the kitchen. He enjoyed a wonderful life on the sprawling, state-of-the-art battleship. But one day, Oscar heard the cannons boom above deck. Now, this was frequent as the sailors had to train often, but the cannons continued to rumble and planes could be heard overhead. Eventually, Oscar was shaken off of his bed. He prowled through the hallway before coming across a fire with men yelling. The ship was hit by two more torpedoes and soon began to lean to one side. Oscar bolted up the steps as the boiler room exploded. The gray sky was painted with fire and smoke. Oscar hit the icy water of the Atlantic. He clung to some debris and, hours later, was rescued by the homeward-bound British destroyer, the HMS Cossack. Oscar was adopted by this ship's crew, and he adjusted to life on the new vessel. He would nuzzle up to sailors' legs and nap near windows overlooking the sea. The HMS Cossack was soon headed to the Mediterranean to assist in several escort missions. This ship saw significantly more action, and Oscar was awoken more times than he preferred by alarms and machine gun fire. Eventually, this ship was hit by a torpedo as well, and began to slowly sink on its way to the Strait of Gibraltar. This poor cat must have thought, not again, but somehow he survived this sinking as well. He was transferred to another British ship, this one an aircraft carrier, the HMS Ark Royal. Due to his fame as a survivor of multiple sinking ships, he was now called Unsinkable Sam. The Ark Royal was the largest ship he had been on yet, and he enjoyed the company of so many sailors. He spent most of his time watching planes take off from a window near the bridge. He was on the Ark Royal for just a month before it, too, was hit by a torpedo and sunk. Unsinkable Sam, living up to his namesake, was found clinging to a piece of debris in the water. Sadly, an all-too-familiar position for the poor cat. He was described by his rescuers as quite angry, but unharmed. At this point, Unsinkable Sam was transferred to two other ships. Sailors are notoriously superstitious and decided that they didn't want to risk taking this cat on their ship. That cat may have been unsinkable, but that didn't seem to be the case for every single ship he'd been on. Which, by the way, both ships he had been transferred to during his voyage back to England both sunk later in the war. Unsinkable Sam eventually got back to land, where he remained incredibly friendly as he stayed in a home for retired sailors in Northern Ireland. His story was told quite frequently and quite fondly. He remained there for the rest of the war and the rest of his life. He enjoyed the rest of his, if my math is correct, six lives in peace. Mini story number 12, The Butterfly Effect. Monarch butterflies have always been a staple of the North American continent. A hunting band of Aztec warriors would gaze up at the sky and see millions of monarch butterflies fluttering overhead. A group of French fur traders would witness a patch of orange autumn in an otherwise green grove of trees. Mexican families would sing during Dias de los Muertos as the annual butterfly migration danced overhead. American elementary school students would release their butterflies that they had grown from just caterpillars. In 1990, George Bush Sr. pushed forward legislation making an amendment to the Clean Air Act. 
The amendment's aim was to limit carbon emissions and reduce air pollution. A large part of this was adding oxygen and additives to gasoline in order for the fuel to burn cleaner and more efficiently. From 1992 to 2005, the most common additive was MTBE. But after environmental concerns arose over that chemical, people had to find another way to oxygenate their gasoline. What they turned to was ethanol. Ethanol is a biofuel, and in the United States it comes mostly from corn. Because of the demand for ethanol and for corn syrup, corn crops spread across much of the Midwest and the Great Plains. In addition to more land devoted to corn, new herbicides such as Roundup, coupled with herbicide-resistant corn plants, allowed for farmers to obliterate weeds in their fields without harming their corn. This led to increased crop yields and increased profits. However, these sprawling herbicide-resistant cornfields lay smack dab in the middle of the monarch butterfly's migration route. And the butterfly larva can only feed on one thing, milkweed a weed that is now being decimated by herbicides. As a result, in the past 20 years, the monarch butterfly population has dropped by 90%. Even though massive clouds of orange butterflies flying north and south each year have been a staple in North America for millennia, their future is now uncertain. All from a bill aimed at helping the environment. Unforeseen consequences from a small action so long ago. Butterflies proving the butterfly effect. Mini Story 13 Where the Birds Go. For most of human history, people didn't know why many birds disappeared during different seasons. Aristotle concluded that they must hibernate in the winter. Others suggested that they burrowed into the ground, or turned into rodents, or dove under the sea to live out the winter. And these strange theories were what people believed through the classical era, through the medieval era, through the Renaissance, and even into the industrial era. In fact, a 1703 pamphlet titled An Essay Towards the Probable Solution of This Question, Whence Come the Stork and the Turtle Dove, the Crane and the Swallow, When They Know and Observe the Appointed Time of Their Coming, postulated that birds went to the moon during winter. The moon! But on May 21st, 1822, a hunter in Mecklenburg, Germany, shot a white stork. However, when he went to retrieve the animal's body, he found something strange sticking through its neck. A spear. The hunter took the stork to the University of Rostock, and several professors identified the spear as being from Central Africa. Because of that bird that made an incredible journey north despite having an African hunter spear in its neck, we now know that millions of birds migrate each year. Mini story number 14, Eclipse. In April 1764, under a solar eclipse, a racing horse was born in Cumberland, England. He was called Eclipse after the astronomical events surrounding his birth. He was a sturdy specimen. He had what was described as a large, ugly head, but was unusually tall. He was a bright chestnut color with a single white hind leg. Eclipse was deemed to be too temperamental to race, and many jockeys didn't even want to go near him. However, at age five, a brave trainer and jockey prepared Eclipse for his first race. And he did fantastic. A local reporter missed the race, but talked to an old lady afterwards 
who had claimed to witness the horse's first outing. She said she saw a horse chasing another horse with a single white leg, and the horse behind wouldn't catch that horse even if they raced to the ends of the earth. Whether that was dementia or prophecy, it was printed, and people were hyped to see what this horse Eclipse could do. After Eclipse's second race, which he won handily, an Irishman named Dennis O'Kelly purchased Eclipse for a large sum. He then bet nearly everything he had left on Eclipse's next race. And he won. He won enough to recuperate what he paid for Eclipse in the first place. This massive horse continued winning and continued to make O'Kelly a very rich man. Eclipse could cover 25 feet in a single stride, and his top speed was rumored to be over 80 feet per second. This horse was fast. Soon, horse betting in England became downright boring, as rarely would anyone bet on any other horse besides Eclipse. The true gambling occurred on betting on which horse would get second place, because Eclipse was essentially guaranteed to win every race that he was in. Eclipse went on to win 11 King's Plates and never lost a single race. The phrase, blank first, the rest nowhere, originated from announcers continually saying, Eclipse first, the rest nowhere, because all the other horses were sometimes on the other side of the track when Eclipse finished. The jockey claimed to have never even pushed Eclipse close to his limit. After Eclipse retired, people paid top dollar for Eclipse to breed with their horses. So many horses bred with Eclipse, and so many of those horses became exceptional racers, that it is estimated that 95% of all thoroughbred horses can trace their lineage back to Eclipse. Mini story number 15. Cats are some of the most beloved house pets in the world today, but throughout history that has not always been the case. The Romans were the first to introduce domestic cats to the European continent, after discovering them and the role they played in Egypt. Felines quickly spread throughout Europe as pets and a means of keeping vermin away. However, by the medieval era, cats were sometimes viewed in a more negative light. Cat populations would often get out of control, and entire cat colonies would often smother towns. Additionally, Pope Gregory IX declared cats to be unholy due to their association with witchcraft. Because of this, cats were routinely killed and even tortured. In some villages, there was a tradition of tossing cats into boiling oil. All of this disdain for cats led to a decline in the cat population of Europe. This had unforeseen circumstances when, in the 1340s, rats with fleas infected with the bubonic plague entered European ports from ships, and now there were no legions of cats to protect Europeans from the spread of the Black Plague. Mini story number 16, Ham the Astrochimp. In July of 1959, a group of two-year-old chimpanzees began training for an aerospace mission. By this point, the Cold War was well underway, with the Soviets beating Americans to the punch with the launch of their satellite Sputnik. The United States began designing a capsule that could successfully take a man to space. But first, they had to make sure that the man they sent could survive. Enter Ham. Ham was a chimpanzee from Cameroon, Africa. He was captured as a baby and raised in a zoo in Miami, Florida. He was soon bought by the United States Air Force. 
He was trained along with a few other monkeys to follow simple commands and pull levers under lights when they lit up. Each time he was correct, a dispenser would award him a banana-flavored pellet. Ham was chosen from his peers to be the Mercury Redstone 2 mission's official astrochimp. Ham, who was named after the Holloman Aerospace Medical Center, H-A-M, underwent many medical tests and was rigorously trained to ensure he could follow orders and go through the motions that NASA wanted. On January 31, 1961, Ham was rolled out in a stroller towards the Mercury 2 capsule. He was wearing his specially designed chimpanzee spacesuit. He smiled at various trainers and scientists and engineers as he was pushed by, blissfully unaware of how nervous he should have been. Ham was strapped into the capsule and the door closed shut. Around Ham sat his familiar lever-pulling device that he had trained with so much, so many times before. Above and below him were so many lights and buttons and wires. Through the reinforced window, Ham saw engineers doing a final inspection of the spacecraft. After a slight delay, the Mercury 2 mission was cleared for takeoff. Ham watched as Cape Canaveral disappeared from view, and he felt gravity pull harder against his seat. Behind the chimp, the oxygen canister began to leak. Additionally, the rocket's ascent was off by one degree, changing the predetermined flight path. A mayday signal was automatically sent out to the retrieval ships in the Atlantic. Back on the ground, the primitive computer estimated that Ham would experience around 17 Gs. Additionally, almost all cabin pressure was gone due to that leak in the oxygen canister. Almost all the scientists began to believe that they had seen Ham alive for the last time. Meanwhile, Ham's capsule had exited the atmosphere. There was no cabin pressure, but Ham's spacesuit seemed to be holding up so far. The chimpanzee looked out through the window at the world below. We don't know what he felt as he viewed his home planet from so high above it, but I'd bet it was something close to awe. The bright-eyed chimp saw what no human had before, but now he had to complete his tasks. The lights lit up and Ham pulled the correct levers and the correct sequences. Despite working in zero gravity, his reaction times were nearly the same as they were on Earth. Ham searched the capsule for his banana pellet dispenser to no avail. After about 10 minutes, the Mercury 2 capsule began its descent back to Earth. However, the Mayday message had triggered a rocket designed to slow the capsule to fall off and Ham was now overshooting his predetermined landing area by over 100 miles. Ham saw a faint glow that grew ever brighter outside his window as the capsule zoomed into Earth's atmosphere. As the minutes passed, the capsule began to shake violently, and Ham looked away from the bright window. We can't know what Ham was thinking in these final moments, but I bet it wasn't good. Navy crewmen standing on the deck of the USS Ellison saw the small trail in the sky of the Mercury module's re-entry. The entire retrieval fleet moved as quickly as possible to the new landing area, desperately hoping they wouldn't have to pull a dead monkey out of a capsule. Spotter aircraft began search patterns trying to locate the MR-2 spacecraft, and a half hour after splashdown, a plane finally located the capsule. A helicopter finally arrived two hours later and found the capsule on its side and taking on water fast. A retrieval crew latched the helicopter to the capsule, but the chopper strained to keep the capsule afloat. 
However, the helicopter kept it from sinking until more ships could arrive. The capsule was loaded onto a ship, and the doors opened. Ham was unharmed. The chimpanzee smiled at his rescuers and looked no worse for wear. He was taken back to Cape Canaveral to undergo more testing to analyze the effects of zero gravity. In short, Ham proved that humans could go to space. Both Russia and the United States launched humans into space later that year. After his pivotal spaceflight, Ham retired, putting his astronaut days behind him. He was later given to the National Zoo in Washington, D.C., a government employee through and through. Primatologists believe that Ham probably remembered that one day in 1961, when he went to space and witnessed what no chimp or human had ever witnessed before him. They think he remembered that day until the day he died in 1983. But I doubt the other chimps ever believed his story. I'll leave you with this. When someone asks you if it was Russia or the United States that won the space race, tell them it was neither. Tell them the winner of the space race was a chimpanzee named Ham. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, and is a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. You can follow Historium on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where I often post pictures or quotes from history that I find interesting. If you want to see Historium episodes become longer and more frequent, you can donate to the show on Patreon. Part 3 of this series of animal-related mini-stories will air in two weeks. As always, thanks for listening.